Let me ask you a question. Have you ever come across a person where their attitude is such where you just don't want to be around them? You know, I, I, think I, I think back to when I was parenting at times with my kids. Uh, your parents, have you ever... Andy Bethany, change your attitude. Anybody ever done that besides me? You know that, parents, it really doesn't work like that, does it, um, in that? And, and by the way, when they're young, most of the time it's because they don't have enough sleep or they're hungry in that. But as, as a person gets older, maybe even entering middle school or so, there's a disposition, an attitude that we take on that defines kind of who we are. But it goes beyond sleep and food, understand. Because there are, well, the idea of attitudes, they're a little bit more complicated than we want to admit. And sometimes, for example, attitudes deeply intersect with words like bitterness, anger, resentment. Let me give you a a definition of that word attitude here as we we go after this word this morning. The definition here, the manner, the disposition, the feeling, the position with regard to a person or thing, tendency or orientation, especially the mind. And I'll, I'll put it this way, we also have temporary attitudes. You know, something comes into our lives and we react and our attitude can change almost just like that. But these bumps, the attitudes that we have, both kind of overarching attitude of our life and even the temporary ones, we recognize it bumps up into people. It it really does. Now let me put some more synonyms on on the screen here for you as we look at this idea of attitudes here this morning. Mindset, perspective, philosophy, point of view, stance, temperament, posture. See, everyone has an attitude, and I don't know if you noticed the title of the sermon, Attitude Matters. Attitude Matters. And here's why I'm going to be going down this path here today. This passage, matter of fact, I think we could say the whole book, shouts and displays the attitude of Paul, the writer. He had an attitude. But as we look at his attitude, we recognize that sometimes ours is so far from that. Now, I was looking up, when I was looking up online, just the definition, one of the, there was a site that popped up in the, when I Googled it, and it was signs of having a negative attitude. And, and let me begin with just giving a couple of those. You might want to check these to go, maybe you're here or not. But the first one in your notes, if you're following along in the outline, you're always worrying See, many people don't even know that they're worrying. And it's almost a second nature for some people. Because if you slow down, you just take a look at your thoughts. Are you constantly looking to the future and go, I wonder what's going to go wrong? That's some people. And if that's your thinking, you're probably a habitual worrier, which is a negative attitude. Let me give you another one. You are the world's greatest pessimist. See, if someone's talking about their plans and you run up to them and they're all excited and you hear them and then you begin to go, well, you know, this can go wrong. 
Have you ever had people do that? Or maybe you do it yourself. The excitement and all of a sudden throwing cold water on people. That is an indicator of a negative attitude. Here's another one. You tend to be overly sensitive. You know, when somebody constantly dwells on the negative, what ends up happening, it it really affects the internal thinking of the way we react. And it morphs into a place where people become overly sensitive almost at everything in life. And they take situations and conversations personally almost immediately. And the result, by the way, is in this blog, it was going on to explain, it always leads to damaged relationships. And uh, really because of self-absorption there, it actually can be toxic. Let me give you another one. You don't go outside your comfort zone. You know, if you were to pull out your calendars and, and look, how often do you do things that are outside the norm? Or do you have to live in terms of this secure world? And that security at times keeps us inactive. And it, it pushes people toward a negative attitude. And they be, people become stagnant and, and closed-minded. The last one and this blog that it had, you dwell on the past. You dwell on the past. See, if we focus on the past, now, I gotta stop, because you realize there's sometimes, even for myself when I counsel people, you take people to the past to recognize what went wrong. But what I'm talking about here is really living in the past in the good old days. The good old days, back then they could fill in the blank. You know, the hard thing is when people, though, get stuck in the past, it's actually easy to become a victim in the present. And oftentimes, we, people throw out trusting Christ in it. And, and matter of fact, the whole idea of being a victim, it actually is quite comfortable for people. And uh, people get stuck there. But living in the past becomes the norm. You know, just last week, I was wearing my letterman's jacket and a number of, okay, I wasn't doing that, but uh, yeah, living in the past. Today, here's what we want to do. We want to contrast some attitudes. And, and you think of those negative attitudes, and then you look at the attitudes of what Paul communicated and what his life was about. We see such a contrast. But here's where I, I want to just put up a verse from a couple weeks ago that we looked at. But it really is a summary of Paul's attitude, the way he thought about life, the way he looked at people. And, and look at Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, that would be a summary of an attitude of Paul. Matter of fact, let me put it on the screen, just kind of a summary of his life. Paul's attitude, his disposition in life, was to help everyone that he encountered meet a life-changing Jesus. That was the attitude of his life. See, if Paul were to walk into these doors this morning, 
He would look around at you and me, and he would look at, for example, myself, and he'd say, I wonder how I could push Ken just a little bit more toward walking with Jesus. What he would need. I, I think if he walked in the doors, he'd, he'd look around us, and he'd stop, and he'd pray, and he'd go, I wonder what I can do to spur this congregation on to walk toward Jesus and to fall in love with Jesus just a little bit more. Do you catch the heart of Paul's attitude? By the way, if you're a guest here today with us, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians here. And I think we would say it, I would say it this way. We want to become a church that above all, that's the title of the series, above all else, that we are rooted in Christ, that our identity as a church is in Christ, that individually our identity is all about Jesus. We want him to be our hope. We want to fall in love with him. We want him to become the center of our universe as a church and as individuals. But we got to realize something as we look at Paul. There are some motivating factors that went into play to get him to a point where this Colossians 1.29, I want to move people toward Jesus. And one of those factors was his time with Christ and looking at what Christ did, and I think conversing with him even as he was getting trained. But I want to put Philippians 2 on the screen because it speaks directly to this idea of attitude. Look at what it says here. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So looking back at those verses after, have this attitude. See, Paul was pursuing Jesus, and Jesus instilled, prompted him to move into an area of his life where he was compelled to help other people know and be changed by Jesus. But here it tells us, That we're called to put on an attitude just like Christ. What does it include? Humility. Selflessness. An attitude where we humble ourselves just like Christ. And we bow before him and he changes us. And it makes a difference in our attitudes. Matter of fact, Ephesians 5.1 says this, be imitators of Christ as dearly beloved children. We are charged, we are commanded to imitate and model Christ's attitude. It's hard. I, I think it's hard. But this attitude of humility, putting others first, our interest second. But Here's where we need to jump into the text here. Look at Colossians 2, verse 1 to begin today. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. He's saying, church, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. Now, do you feel the intensity even in Paul's attitude here. That word struggle is the word agony. Agonize. I am agonizing for you, for this church, and for the church at Laodicea. Now, we got to catch something here as well. 
He did not visit, for example, that church in the, in the city of Colossae, the Colossians church. Never visited them. He probably knew two, maybe three people in the church. He didn't know the families. He didn't know the marriages. He didn't know their personal struggles. He didn't, understand, he didn't know really anything about the rest of the congregation. And yet, he says, I have a deep spiritual burden for you. Our attitude matters. And that, well, I don't know if you realize this, that our attitude reveals what is most important in our lives. In our lives. Our attitude, matter of fact, I would even go one step farther, it reveals where we're really at spiritually. It's kind of a hard thing to realize as people look at our attitudes let me give you the first point in the sermon here. If you're following along in the sermon outline, as we imitate Christ and we imitate Paul, what does he want for us if we claim to follow Jesus? And that first point, number one, we, he wants an attitude that includes spiritual care for people whom we don't even know well. Looking out for the interests of others. It's one thing to care about people who are our friends. But you catch this attitude. It's about the people over here that we don't even know well. We're still called to care. You catch the attitude of Paul. He's looking out for people he hasn't even met. The interests of others. How do we get there? Humility taking on the attitude of Christ in servanthood, new eyes to see people in a way that's just radically different. Let's keep going. Look at verse 2 here. I'm struggling for you so that, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches, the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he's saying, Christ is the answer, but you got to catch that phrase, being knit together in love. Let me give you the second point there. What he wants us to have, an attitude of opening our lives relationally to people within the body of Christ. He looked at that church, guys, you need to be knit together in love. Have this attitude of allowing people in your life. Do we, that second point, open our lives relationally to people? See, Paul got this. He understood the need for relationships in our lives, deep relationships. But he's connecting it to an area of spiritual growth here. I want to put up a quote by a guy by the name of F.F. Bruce. He writes commentaries. He's a scholar. Here's what he wrote. Paul's emphasis was that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from a cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. Bruce is saying this, we will not fully grasp the, the mystery of Jesus without people in our lives. 
That's what Paul is communicating here. Pursuing God in isolation. Paul goes, no. It's not the intent of God. You know, this idea that all I need is Jesus or all I need is my family in Jesus, that is so contrary to what Paul knows to be true. Now, there's a place where some people also adopt, uh, maybe they don't have family, whatever, but they adopt this idea of a mystic understanding of Jesus. I'm going to get close to Jesus by pulling myself away from people. The whole, you know, all, all through the years, there's been mystics that have tried to pull away and say, that's where you meet God. That's where you learn the mystery of Christ. Matter of fact, in 450 AD, there was a guy by the name of Saint um, Simeon Stylites, uh, kind of a weird dude, but he was a, a priest, a clergyman. And interesting what he did is that he really believed that for him to get close to God, you pull away from people. And he put a pole in the ground, and he built a four-foot platform on top. And I don't know if you know this, but he lived on that platform for 37 years, believing that's how you got close to God and knew the mystery of Christ. We need people to help us actually know the mystery of Christ Our relationships within the body reveals what it means to know Christ. Paul's saying that you will fall short of knowing the mystery of Christ without people. Let me give you another another verse here. Look at verse 4. Keep going. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Be knit together with people. You need them to know the mystery of Christ, but so that no one would delude you. You see what's happening here? Number three in your notes. Here's what I always stated. We need to have an attitude and a desire to spiritually protect other people. See, back then, what was functionally happening, there was guys coming in, teaching in that particular church. They were teaching what I'd call garbage doctrine. Just bad. Now, here's the challenge in 2019. Do we even know what garbage doctrine is? Do we even recognize it? See, I I think one of the nuances here, we must care about going deeper into some of the the doctrines and the mysteries of Christ to understand who he is. We need to understand the gospel in a more, in a deeper way. The mentoring class, you know, one more week on it. Wednesday night, I, I told the class this. One of the questions that when I meet with people all the time, one of the big questions that I'm looking for is, what do they think about God? What do they believe about God? See, that defines this word theology. Theology, the word, don't get, we've got to be careful. It just means the study of God. That's all it literally means, okay? 
Because what we believe about God makes a difference the way we walk in this world. How we trust him. How we obey him. How all different kinds of things. Our definition of God comes into play every day the way that we live life. And at times, we've got to go deeper even in our theology. And if we, we say... I can't, I don't care about that going deeper. What you're saying is you don't care about what you think about God. That's not a good place to be. Matter of fact, I, I think the challenge in the U.S. Is, is that we're at a really bad spot doctrinally in, in terms of the churches across the United States. Matter of fact, I've seen in the last, about the last 10 years in particular, there's more and more a buying into politically correctness, even when it comes to doctrine in the Bible. And, and it's this, never challenge anybody's beliefs. Let them believe what they want to believe. Don't ever question them. Stay away from that. Whatever you believe is, you know, whatever it's good enough for you, I'll believe what I want to believe. See, I think we're okay with bad theology and recognize this bad theology impacts the way we live every day. Now, I, I, I know this. Some people won't accept talking about the doctrine of their life, but generally speaking, they're, they're pretty insecure. If they can't defend their doctrine, guess what? There's issues of insecurity there. But I, I'm going to say this. There are churches in our community with poor biblical doctrine. I, I'm going to say that. So this attitude, let's just get along. I go, nah, how do you protect people? Folks, bad theology, bad doctrine is keeping them from fully knowing the mystery of Christ. And it's also keeping some people... It's keeping them on a fast track to hell. And it's keeping them on a road marked rebellion with God because of bad doctrine and theology. See, caring for people assumes protection. And that was what was going on with Paul here. He had an attitude of protecting people. Let's keep going. Look at verse 5. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in the spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You catch the attitude here? Let me put it in point four in your notes. Look at the attitude here. We are to have an attitude of spiritual encouragement. Paul was looking at this church and going, yes, I see God working in your life. Now, let me ask a question. When you see God working in somebody else's life, do you go up to them and let them know when you see it? Now, if you don't ever do that, one of the reasons that you might not is that you're not close enough to anyone to actually see spiritual change. And that's an issue. That's a problem. But let me keep going. Look at verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You're firm in your faith. Knit together, love each other, and then together walk in him. 
Now, I actually don't have a point from this verse. I should have. But what does it mean to walk in him? Functionally, it's this. It's about abiding in Christ. John chapter 15, the branches and the vine. This idea that we stay connected to Jesus. This is where the word of God, folks, is so important in that phrase. But let me illustrate this. When one puts their faith in Christ, what I mean by that is we've recognized their own sinfulness. That we're separated from God. And we turn to Jesus and you say, we're going to accept what you did and your work on the cross. When that happens, a miracle takes place. And the Holy Spirit, John chapter 3, rebirths us. Uh, where there's something new here. It's a miracle, actually. But at that moment, he puts the Holy Spirit in us. And the Holy Spirit begins starting to whisper to us. And the whisper, it goes like this. Find more about Jesus. Get to know this Jesus guy. Keep walking toward him. See, what, he's, what he does, the miracle is, he puts a desire within you to want to know him. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit is there, that salvation has occurred. But he creates a desire within you. I gotta, I gotta know this Jesus guy. I want to put a picture on the screen. Ocean, lake, maybe it's Malax Lake. I don't know. But, but picture that water. It's Jesus. Maybe to say it this way: it's living water. He said he was the living water. And for all of us, if you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit just said. I need some of that water. I need that water that gives life. But here's what people, to, what people do. They go down to that big lake and they take with them a teaspoon. And man, the Holy Spirit is saying, taste of Jesus. And we take a teaspoon down and we dip it in. Oh, that was good. Is it satisfying? Yes, to a certain degree. But you understand how many teaspoons it, say, t- it takes to really be satisfied. And there's some people that don't use a teaspoon. They take a cup. And they go down to that water and they dip in and they walk back home. And, oh man, this is really good. Now the difference between a teaspoon and a cup is significant. But is a cup enough? The Holy Spirit is going, can drink. Can drink of it. And we take our cup back. But I I think if we're going to really make Christ above all, let me put a picture on the screen. We got to go down with buckets. And we need maybe two of them. And we take one back home, and in this bucket, we're going to be using it for drinking, living water. And the other bucket we're going to use for washing, we're going to allow the water to wash us and cleanse us and make us whole. The difference between a teaspoon and buckets 
See, that's the challenge that we have. And yet the Holy Spirit keeps whispering, whispering, hey, taste of Jesus, drink of Jesus, pursue him. But here's the deal on, on water. We know this because we can acclimate ourselves to the amount of water that we take in. And we go down to that lake and, and we're the teaspoon. It does taste good. If we're thirsty a little bit, yeah, three or four teaspoons, oh, that's refreshing. Or three and four cups, yeah, that's refreshing. But buckets, we're living in it every day. See, we acclimate ourselves to it, but, but recognize this. A teaspoon a day will not keep the devil away. And a teaspoon a day will not create an identity in your life where it's all about Jesus. That's the hard reality for us. We need more than a teaspoon a day to say, for me to live is Christ. We need, and the Spirit, though, just keeps whispering, even if we're doing a teaspoon or a cup or buckets. The Spirit is going, drink of me. Drink. So how big a scoop do you have right now? Teaspoon, cup, buckets. But I need to end with verse 7 this morning. And guys, this is a very, very important verse as I was digging into it this week. Look how it reads. Now I'm going to use the New American Standard here. The ESV kind of loses just a little emphasis here. There's a key point here that it loses. Look how it reads here. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So important here because we're on a journey where, as I said it before, above all, we want Christ to be above all. And at times in that pursuit of doing that, we take two steps forward in our faith, and then, you know, we take three steps back. And then we take two steps forward and two back. And we get frustrated. And we ponder, we sit there and we go, is God doing anything in my life? And here's where... I think we know this. We get stuck in our failures. We, we begin to see ourselves as worthless. And, and even sometimes people get to a place where they go, I don't even deserve Jesus. And we feel like we just don't measure up. And, and we continue to struggle with the junk in our lives, the baggage. It weighs us down. And if you notice the phrasing there, though, this is where i got to point out the phrasing. Having been rooted. That's why it's so important, the phrasing. Paul wants you to know, if you have put your faith in him, if you believe that he died for your sins, and you've embraced him as Lord and Savior, you are rooted in Christ. Nothing can take that away from you. That past event, that miracle of a new birth, means you are rooted in Christ. It's accomplished. Done. You are a child of God. 
And Jesus doesn't have to do one more thing to bring you to a point of being a child of God. You are now a child of God. But the problem, we don't feel like it. And it creates doubt in our lives. Doubt. See, again, if you've put your faith and you said, I need Jesus, you knew that you were separated from God, you've done that, here's the deal. Do not believe the lies of Satan and the flesh. They want to convince you that something more needs to happen. See, Satan wants to defeat you and create doubt and division in your soul. It is by grace you've been saved, not by your effort. It has been through faith. You are, if that's taken place, you are a child of God. But again, we don't feel it. So what do we do? Because the fact is we're rooted in Christ. Christ is the soil with the roots in it. But here's what we do. We go and try to root ourselves in other types of soil. Apart from Christ. We don't go to the ocean and get water. Or if we do, we sometimes water it in the wrong kind of soil. And the roots go down in places that we just doesn't work. Matter of fact, sometimes it's like trying to create roots in sand. They just don't, don't go down. It doesn't work. The water that you do put on it, it's gone. It's gone. But when you think of what kind of soil do we end up trying to make life secure around, one of them is the issue of work. I make work my identity. That's going to give me security. And we water that, and you recognize, no, it doesn't work. It leaves an emptiness for work. Some people, they, they, they put their roots down in, in the soil of pleasure. And yeah, they'll put some of the water there on it. doesn't work. Because pleasure's just trying to cover up the wanderings in the soul, the weaknesses that are there. And I think there's even a third kind of soil here that I see. And many people begin to put their, the soil of relationships, especially like a marriage relationship. That's where my identity is found. Or my family. You know, my kids and my grandkids. That's where my identity is found. Doesn't work. As a matter of fact, Christ's soil and those other soils, he doesn't want to share that. He doesn't want to mix them up. You know, I love my family, but they were never meant to be the place where my identity is found. And we keep believing lies that, that we can have our lives rooted in a whole bunch of stuff other than Christ. So Now, as I look at my family... The goal needs to be, I want my kids and my wife rooted in Christ, not me. Is that our goal? 
But that phrase, that next phrase, now being built up in him and established in your faith. What's Paul doing here? He's saying this. You had, you had the past event. You're rooted in Christ. And but now it's he's telling them this you are progressively being changed by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is changing you. You are being built up. But here, goes folks, feelings lie. And the feeling that nothing is happening in my life, it's a lie. See, when the Holy Spirit was implanted in you, he does not give up on the process of spiritual change. He fights you on it tooth and nail. But we keep believing the lies. I see no progress. Two steps forward, two steps back. We keep going there. And we battle the subtle addictions of life. And then there's the bigger addictions. And we feel so stuck. And when we feel stuck, you know what Satan does? Think of it like in a hospital room. They put an IV, puts a bottle up there, and he hooks a line into our soul, and there's this drip, 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 and the fluid is shame. And shame overtakes us. See, Satan wants to go, you're a mistake. You're a failure. He wants to leave you on a roller coaster of temptation. And you know what? You're not making any headway. And the truth of this passage, this verse right here, Paul is telling them and us here today, the Spirit is working. Now, again, hear this. This isn't the power of positive thinking. Listen, the fact that you're frustrated, if you are frustrated with where you're at spiritually, it is evidence that the Spirit of God is working within you. It's a sign of progress. And the fact that you're actually here today is evidence that your faith is being built up. It's being built up. Now, are we done yet? No, no, no. We got to keep making trips to the ocean with those buckets. Keep watering the soil where we're rooted in Christ. Matter of fact, I, I think if Paul came up here and, and we looked at Paul, we would think, oh, this guy's finished where God's done with him. He would go, no way. I got so much farther to go. See, Paul understood he wasn't done with See, it it leads to this last critical point. Number five, he wants us to have an attitude of certainty of our being rooted in Christ. If we know him as Lord and Savior, you are rooted in Christ. And the certainty of he is working the ongoing work in your life. Because if you are rooted in Christ, the Spirit is there saying, come to me, drink of me, keep going. I'm going to change you. Sometimes it's slow. I acknowledge that. But that's what's going on. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. We're going to sing one last song. But as they're coming up, here's what I want to do. I want to just pray 
over us here today. Because those times when we go two steps forward, three steps back, those are times of discouragement. And what I want to pray this morning over you is that God would, you would sense the Spirit of God in a fresh way going, I'm there for you. I'm working in you. I'm not done with you yet. But maybe there is a few people even in here today that you've come to a place, you go, I don't know what Ken's talking about. And it's functionally this. You've never understood that you were separated from God. That there's a, there's a chasm between you and God. And that you, you need to take step over on that bridge who is Jesus and say, I'm repenting of my sins and I want to give my life to you, Jesus. And I want to start a relationship. I want the Holy Spirit whispering in my soul to run toward Jesus. And when we bow our heads and pray, you might need to just pray and say, God, I want to give you, I want to start that relationship today. So let me pray. Father, when we get discouraged, when we recognize that we just feel like we're spinning our wheels, and yet I just want to give you thanks for the Holy Spirit being placed in us and whispering that constant voice of come to me. Taste and see that I'm good. So, Father, would you help us go down to the lake, not with a teaspoon, but with a bigger container every time? And would we just be refreshed by spending time with you? Would, we, would you open up our lives that would, even other people would be adding to our buckets, encouraging us? Give us the ability to move and, and, and to join people in this journey of walking toward you. So Father, be with us and encourage us today. But Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, I would pray that your Holy Spirit would rest on them and that you would shake them and that they might be willing to bow and give their life to you today. But would your Spirit meet them and give them life? So Father, I I thank you for this passage today. And I thank you for the work that you're doing in us. These things we pray in your name. Amen.